if the story of the last 20 years was the story of digitization and the rise of the internet, what's next? What are gonna be the big changes technologically and scientifically that fuel our lives other than the internet? It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Alec Ross is an innovation expert and wrote The Industries of the Future. In today's show, he examines the forces that are carving out tomorrow's economy and how we should prepare for a world with powerful artificial intelligence, robotics, and life-changing scientific developments. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly podcast that features compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Before Alec Ross wrote his best-selling book, he was a senior advisor for innovation to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. In his job, he helped take down leaders of drug cartels in Mexico and dealt with assassination plots in Syria. He also traveled a lot. I traveled the equivalent of two round trips to the moon with a side trip to New Zealand. 25 circumferences of the globe to 42 countries. In his travels, he observed the latest technological advances, from startup hubs in Kenya to research and development labs in South Korea. In this episode, Ross explains what changes to expect in the next 10 years and how some industries will thrive while others will sputter. Here's his lecture from the Aspen Ideas Festival. So I want to start with a little story. Um, I have a really good friend who works at the World Bank. And she's focused for the past many years on West Africa. And one of the countries in her, that she focuses on is Togo. And Togo is this itty bitty little country on the western coast of Africa. It has a per capita GDP of about $900 a year. And every, every time she goes to Togo, she visits the same village, goes to the same street corner, where the same barefooted and bare-chested young man is selling tin toys. And for those of you who have traveled much in Africa, you've probably seen these you know, little toys made out of scrap metal. And she always buys one for her son, Yusuf. And she told me, she said, the last time she was in Togo, she, she went there, and the young man was there almost waiting for her. Uh, but this time he wasn't barefooted or bare-chested. He had a nice pair of shoes on and he had a nice colored shirt. And as she approached him, he said, Madam, every time you come to my country, you come to my village, you visit me here on this street corner, and you buy one of the two or three toys that I have on display. In the future, why don't you just email me? <laughs> Tell me you're coming. Tell me what kind of toy you would like, uh, and I'll have it ready and waiting here for you. Or if you have a smartphone like me, you can take a picture of something in the United States. Send the picture to me. It'll reach me here in my video. I will make the toy that looks exactly like you want it to look. Now look, the reason I'm telling that story is that when the teenage tin toy maker in Togo is connecting to global marketplaces through mobile broadband networks, the world is not changing the world has changed. Uh, and it's that world of sort of cr disruptive change that I want to spend the next half hour or so talking to you about. And then hopefully we can get into some, some interesting question and answer. Uh, my own path 
to this stage is a little bit of an interesting one. You know, my own upbringing, honestly, it was closer to the teenage tin toy maker in Togo. You know, I'm from public schools in West Virginia and put myself through college in part by, by working as a midnight janitor, uh, cleaning up after country music concerts in Charleston, West Virginia. Uh, while my buddies were off, you know, doing unpaid internships at investment banks or law firms or, you know, in congressional offices, I had to actually push them up uh, to put myself through college. And that sort of, I'm really glad that I had that experience. And after that experience of growing up, you know, with rural poverty all around me, uh, I then became an inner city school teacher through Teach for America and taught in West Baltimore. Actually taught in the community where Freddie Gray uh, grew up and where he was a student. And so this experience of, of growing up in West Virginia and teaching in West Baltimore, uh, it made me well balanced. I have a chip on both shoulders. Um, but you know, look, I, I was lucky. And, and like so many people witnessing this technology-led transformation of the economy and the loss of America's industrial and manufacturing base, you know, I had this crazy idea 20, you know, going on 20 years ago that I was like, you know what, in order to compete and succeed in tomorrow's economy, people are going to need internet access and they're going to need uh, knowledge-based skills. So I started a company in a basement and if I were smarter, if I were wiser then, I would have known that I had absolutely no business starting this company. We didn't have any capital. We had sort of a concept in search of an idea. Uh, but like so many 20-somethings, I thought I was bulletproof. Um, and because I didn't know uh, that I was supposed to fail and that I should have failed, we didn't. Uh, and took you know, our, our little ragtag company from being three guys in a basement to a relatively successful global enterprise. Went from that to running technology and media policy for Barack Obama's presidential campaign. Uh, and that went well. Uh, and it went well at Hillary Clinton's expense. Um, and so she hired me. And, and you know, after she hired me, she said, you know, Alec, I thought I was going to be president. And you know, there are a lot of very capable people uh, who have worked with and for me over the years. And they were going to fill up all of the executive offices you know, in the federal government, the politically appointed offices in the federal government. She goes, but I need, she goes, now I need to get them all into one place. I need to get them all into the State Department. Uh, she goes, but I do need to make one, one exception. She goes, I need one of you internet innovation people to come work for me. So make up your own title, which is why I got a cool title like Senior Advisor for Innovation to the Secretary of State. And she said, and work with me on this 196 country chessboard to figure out how technology is going to impact the conduct of our foreign policy. Now, I should say, I started right after she set up her email. Um, so, for, so for those of you who are here to learn how to set up a homebrewed server in your basement, I apologize, that wasn't me. Um, so if you came to learn how to do that, you know, I'm the wrong guy. Uh, but for four years, you know, we did fascinating work together from setting up an anonymized encrypted crime reporting program in northern Mexico that took down the leadership of a couple cartels to setting up a program in Syria to help stop the surgical political assassinations that were taking place because of people being able to be geolocated through the, the GPS on their, on their mobile phones. So four years working at the White Hot Center of our foreign policy with a specific focus on technology. And after that four-year run, I became obsessed with a single question. 
is that if the story of the last 20 years was the story of digitization and the rise of the internet, if the story of the last 20 years in many respects was the story of the teenage tin toy maker in Togo connecting to global marketplaces through mobile broadband, what's next? What's gonna be the story of 2016 to 2026? What are gonna be the big changes technologically and scientifically that fuel our lives other than the internet? And so the product of that was a whole lot of travel of, and research over a couple years. I traveled the equivalent of two round trips to the moon with a side trip to New Zealand. 25 circumferences of the globe to 42 countries. And you know this travel and this sort of intensive study of what's next uh, led to this book, The Industries of the Future. And what I wanna do is I wanna share just a handful of the theses from that book with you and then open it up to some question and answer. Uh, thesis number one, land was the raw material of the agricultural age. Iron was the raw material of the industrial age. Data is the raw material of the information age. He who owned the land and controlled the land during the agricultural age had the economic power and the political power. He who owned the factories and controlled access to the natural resources during the industrial age had the economic power and had the political power. He or she who owned the data, controlled the data, and can draw meaning from the data are those who are creating the industries of the future. And I'm sure you've all heard about this concept of big data analytics and the application of, of data in new, to new fields. But the, the God's honest truth is that our ability to harvest information from all, harvest actionable information from all this data that we're creating is a relatively new development. And in fact, 90% of the world's information, 90% of the world's data has been produced in the last two years. 90% of all of the world's data has been produced in the last two years. In fact, if you take the sum of all of the information created from the earliest recordings of mankind, literally painting on cave walls, from the paintings on the cave walls to the year 2003, the sum of all of that information, paintings on cave walls to 2003, we now produce that much information every two days. And so what this means is that we're, we are producing Pacific Ocean's worth of information. And the ability to draw information out of that is going to create entirely new industries and it's going to turn old industries on their ear. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, author and innovation expert Alec Ross. Ross wrote the New York Times bestseller, The Industries of the Future. He also served on a technology committee for Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, and he worked for four years under Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. His talk about what's next for the global economy was held at the 2016 Aspen Ideas Festival. One of these new industries, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and robotics. I think that the, the robots of the cartoons and movies 
from the 1970s are going to be the reality of the 2020s. And the reason for that is really two things. The first is a mathematical breakthrough that's, taken, that's really taken root in just the last few years called mapping belief space. There are things that are historically very difficult robotic tasks like grasping. Grasping might seem relatively straightforward, but it's actually very complex to model out mathematically and to therefore program algorithmically. Uh, but breakthroughs that we've made through in mapping belief space in just the last few years have enabled us to take robotics from being dominantly two-dimensional into being increasingly three-dimensional. The second big development in robotics uh, that's going to make the robots of the cartoons and movies from the 1970s the reality of the 2020s is cloud robotics. So let's imagine we, were, we are joined right now in Aspen uh, by one of the robots from a movie of the 1970s. Let's imagine that C-3PO joined us, all right? If C-3PO walked in here right now, uh, the movie version, he would say, oh, excuse me, pardon me, oh my. Um, and he'd sort of clamber over to an open seat, right? Now, for those of us who actually understand robotics and the amount of hardware and software necessary for there to be the cognition to recognize, oh, I just interrupted a lecture. The ability to then speak, the sensory ability to identify an open seat, and the mobility to then take that open seat, we are talking about north of half a billion dollars worth of hardware and software that would have to be whirring in that gold gleaming body. That's why we don't have C-3PO. But, uh, C-3PO, come 2020, is going to be a connected device. He's going to be an internet-connected device. So remember when I said 90% of the world's information has been produced in the last two years? That information is being produced by what is today, in June of 2016, 16 billion networked devices. So right now, there are 16 billion devices that are the sum of our smartphones, our iPads, our laptops, the sensors in our supply chains. In four years, in June of 2020, that number will have gone from 16 billion to 40 billion. And it's gonna go from 16 billion to 40 billion, not so much because of closing the digital divide. Let's say we add two, more, two billion more people um, to the, the world of connectedness over the next four years. Oh, great, that's another two, three billion devices. That takes us from 16 to 18. We're not gonna stuff that many more mobile phones in our pocket, we've got enough, right? And so the way we're gonna go from 16 billion to 40 billion networked devices is we're gonna take things, objects, that historically we didn't think of as being connected devices, and we're gonna connect them from our household appliances to our cars to our robots. So when the 2020 version of C-3PO walks through that door, what he's going to do is he's going to ping the cloud. And the cloud will have that half a billion dollars worth of processing power. He will then get instructions back algorithmically that will say, C-3PO, you just interrupted a lecture. Excuse yourself. Excuse yourself in English and the sensors that are pulsing from various people's mobile phones in the room indicate that there are seats in the front row. Go quietly, take one. 
Now for me, where this is most interesting is, is how it boils down to labor economics. What does this mean in terms of the workplace of the future? The combination of very powerful artificial intelligence and advances in robotics means that the next wave of, tech, of labor substitution, the next wave of, jo of human jobs being eaten by machines, is not just going to be the labor of men with strong shoulders working in ports, factories, mines, and mills, doing work that is manual and routine. It is increasingly going to be able to do work that is cognitive and non-routine. And this was explained to me best by a guy named Terry Gu. And Terry is the CEO of a company called Foxconn. Uh, raise your hand if you've heard of Foxconn. So about 40% of the audience. Uh, raise your hand if you own an Apple or a Samsung device. All of you. Uh, Foxconn makes all your, those devices. Apple and Samsung don't make any devices. Uh, they're all made by this Taiwanese company called Foxconn that creates football field-sized factories along the coastal area in China, uh, largely, largely fueled by low-cost Chinese labor taken from the countryside. And in talking about developments in robotics and artificial intelligence, what Terry said to me, he said, he goes, I have 973,000 employees. He goes, and I am sick of humans. He goes, from now on, he goes, I'm not hiring any more humans. I'm just buying robots. And I'm like, well, you know, Terry, due respect, you were sort of the pioneer of the Chinese growth model of taking very low-cost labor from the Chinese countryside, bringing it to these big coastal factories, and employing them to do the manual labor of things like building my iPhone. You know, what do you mean you're, not, you're sick of humans and you're not going to hire any more humans? He goes, humans. No CapEx, all OpEx. He goes, robots, all CapEx, no OpEx. I'm like, well, yeah. I'm like, all right, well, can you unpack that for me a little bit? What do you mean? And he goes, humans. He goes, when you hire a human, no CapEx. He goes, maybe you give them business cards. Maybe you buy them a computer for their desk. He goes, but every two weeks, they want, they want to be paid. Lots of OpEx. And the longer they work for you, the more they want to be paid. You're stuck with OpEx. He goes, robots are the opposite. He goes, lots of CapEx. I have to buy the robot. He goes, but then no OpEx. He goes, no salary. He goes, I work them 24 hours a day. They don't get pregnant. They don't get sick. They don't join a union. They're my slave. And so if we go back to C-3PO, and think about how those kinds of robots have gone from necessarily being devices that would have cost tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to there being actually relatively low-cost, dumb devices, so long as they are internet connected. What you're seeing is entirely new equilibrium points where it's now worth hiring a machine, buying a machine, than hiring a human. Uh, and this is going to cause some really interesting stresses. As labor substitution goes from just being you know, loss of jobs from men with strong shoulders working in ports, factories, mines, and mills to increasingly cognitive, non-routine work. Um, and I think that this is going to significantly contribute to the peril of our future. 
But lest you think I'm dystopian, and I'm not, uh, I think that the coming developments in science and technology are all going to enable us to live substantially longer. So another thesis that I developed over the course of you know, this few years of research, I came to the conclusion that the world's last trillion dollar industry was built out of computer code, but the world's next trillion dollar industry is gonna be built out of our genetic code. You are listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. The Aspen Institute has another podcast you should check out. The Bridge features conversations among women of different generations. In the latest episode, former president of Ireland, Mary Robinson, speaks with Rachel Kite, CEO for Sustainable Energy for All. They discuss why climate change is at the heart of the women's movement. Find it by searching The Bridge from the Aspen Institute on iTunes. Now back to Alec Ross and the industries of the future. Interestingly, my sort of breakthrough understanding of this came in my home city of Baltimore, Maryland. And I learned, I learned it from this guy who for years I thought was just a gym rat. This guy, you know, sort of big, fuzzy, gray hair, plays racquetball three, four times a week, you know, wears a knee brace on the outside of his 1970s style gray sweatpants brings his racquetball gear to the court in this like beaten up old royal blue Samsonite suitcase. Uh, turns out this guy, uh, Bert Vogelstein, is the world's most cited living scientist. Uh, this is what happens when you play racquetball near Johns Hopkins. Um, and it was his team uh, at Hopkins collaborating with a number of, uh, number of other institutions in the 1980s that figured out how mutations in proteins cause cancer. Kind of a big deal, right? And the way he helped me understand the impact of data analytics on all of our future was as follows. He said, you know, right now, Alec, when you go to the doctor, do you get blood taken? I'm like, yeah. He's like, and what does your doctor do with that information? I said, well, you know, basically he tells me what my cholesterol level is. He goes, that's right. He goes, if you give me that vial of blood and $4,000, he goes, I can detect cancerous cells at one one-hundredth the size of what can be detected by an MRI. Because what that means is that cancers that we now routinely find in stages three and four, where, you know, they are gonna be, where they are very difficult to cure, he goes, I can find them very early in stage one when they're much easier to cure and where you don't even feel a little bit sick. And I said, well, that, you know, that's interesting. Well, let me ask all of you, this thing's called a liquid biopsy. How many people here have had a liquid biopsy? That's because we don't have too many billionaires in here today. So what's interesting is that this is also called the billionaire's test. Uh, because this $4,000 test two years ago was $14,000. And before that, it was $140,000. The slope on the graph of getting a biopsy is going like this. And that is because our ability to harvest information out of the 20 to 25,000 genes that are, that are in all of our body are is just now making the promise uh, that we got so excited about when the with the first mapping of the human genome about 15 years ago, it just now 
is becoming possible in a way where the science and the economics are lining up. And so the way Dr. Vogelstein explained it to me, he said, this test that is $4,000 right now, next, he goes, in a year or two, it'll be $1,000. And then a year or two after that, it'll be $400. And then a year or two after that, it's gonna be baked into every, every insurance program in the United States. And the net effect of this, the net effect of this, I believe, is gonna be for my kids uh, and my kids' peers, they are, my children are 13, 11, and nine years old, I think we can expect their average life expectancy to be about three to five years longer than is currently projected because of our ability to do remarkable diagnostics and precision medicines that are gonna flow from our ability to harvest information out of all of the data that lives inside our, our 20 to 25,000 genes. And so on the one hand, we're gonna see incredible stresses in the labor force with the wave of artificial intelligence and robotics that's coming simultaneous to this. We're gonna live longer lives. You know, a key thesis of mine is that the, the coming developments in science and technology are gonna to contribute to both the promise and peril of our future. You know, most people who study this, it, they're either utopian or they're dystopian. It's either, oh, we're gonna to live to be 150 years old, happy, healthy, wealthy, and lacking for nothing, uh, or it's sort of eyes closed, fists clenched, bedwetting dystopianism. And I think the, the God's honest truth is that life's a little bit more up the middle. You know, we're not gonna have a utopian future, and we're not gonna have a dystopian future. And that the waves of technology uh, and the waves of scientific scientific developments that are coming are gonna make life easier and better for, mo for many of us, most of us, I would argue, all, just about all of us in this room. Uh, and it's gonna be make life trickier uh, for certain others. Now, thinking about, now th as I think about this across the architecture of the 196 sovereign nation states and think about the trillions of dollars of wealth that are gonna be created by uh, building the industries of the future. You know, one of the questions that I frequently get is, all right, well, you know, how do we become the home to this? How do we become the Silicon Valley of genomics? Or how do we become the Silicon Valley of robotics? How do, you know, how, are, how do we position ourselves to compete and succeed in our, our increasingly globalized world? And the conclusion that I've come to is that the principal political and economic binary, the principal political and economic struggle of the 20th century was right versus left. And in the 21st century, it's open versus closed. And those states and societies that are most open are gonna be those where capital, uh, where capital congregates, where the innovators and entrepreneurs congregate, and where the innovation, commercialization, wealth creation, and job creation that result from it take place. Uh, and, I say, and let me define what I mean by open. When I say open in this context, I mean that upward economic and social mobility is not constrained to elites. I mean that uh, religious and cultural norms are not set by a central authority and I mean that we are wildly rights-respecting of women's rights, 
of racial and ethnic and sexual minorities' rights. It's those communities, it's those environments uh, where I increasingly see the capital and the talent congregating, where people are imagining and inventing the future. And one point that I would really emphasize here is the role of women. Um, I did not set out to write a feminist book, uh, but I ended up writing a deeply feminist book. Uh, and, it, and, and I basically came to the conclusion that those states and societies that most systematically and intentionally advantage the position of women in business and in the economy more generally are going to be those that compete and succeed most effectively. And I, I view this not just from a standpoint of fairness, you know, it's the right thing to do. I actually believe it's true from an economic competitiveness standpoint, that there is actually causality, uh, that there's more than just correlation between the role of women in an economy and in a business and the efficiency and effectiveness of that society and of that business. And the Peterson Institute uh, recently re released a study that I think affirms this very strongly. Uh, the Peterson Institute is hardly some, you know, hyper-lefty uh, economics institute. You started by Pete Peterson. It's sort of a center-right economics institute. And it did a study of 22,000 companies. And it found a correlation between the profitability of the company and the number of women on the executive team. And as I traveled around the world, what I increasingly saw was that those states and societies that, are, that right now are, have the steepest slope uh, in terms of the innovation curve are those that are doing the most for women uh, and are those that are being uh, the most radically rights respecting. Uh, and this is, you know, this has gotten me criticized in a lot of quarters, particularly in the Middle East, uh, where I've got news for you. You know, through much of the Middle East, they better hope the black stuff keeps bubbling out of the ground and the price goes up. Um, because if they don't, all of these cosmetic things that they are trying to do to create a knowledge-based economy are going to fail. There is absolutely no evidence, no evidence, that any of the investments that have been made from Morocco to Manama uh, in societies where women are systematically disadvantaged for all of the billions of dollars of investment trying to create many Silicon Valleys, this, that, and everything else, I can't find a single good company, much less a single good product. Uh, and I think that that is because the people who do imagine and invent the future simply will not work in those environments. Uh, in the, the final chapter of the book is called The Most Important Job You'll Ever Have. Um, in my circles, we all, you know, me and my friends, we all obsess about two things. We obsess about our work and we obsess about our families. And so as I studied the industries of the future and, you know, got deeper into the data, you know, I, I began to ask myself, you know, what are the skills and attributes that today's kids are gonna to need to compete and succeed in tomorrow's economy. Uh, for children entering primary school today, when they leave university, 65% uh, of the job types that will be available don't even exist today. So we're preparing kids 
for jobs. We don't even know what two-thirds of the jobs are. So what I did is I, is I interviewed people for this book. I asked them all the same question. What are the, what are the skills and attributes that today's kids are going to need to compete and succeed in tomorrow's economy? And there was, there was, some, there was plenty of disagreement. But there are also a few very interesting points of near consensus uh, that I wanted to share with you. And the first is uh, interdisciplinary learning. You know, a lot of people, when they, when they see, when they perceive a world where the power of science and technology is only going to grow, they think STEM, 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 STEM. The world is all about science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And while I think science, technology, engineering, and mathematics are really important, and having an aptitude in, in these fields will be very helpful to get a job, if you actually want to be a leader in the industries of the future, I think that the, I think that the leaders of the industries of the future are going to be those who are interdisciplinary learners. So they have skills, they have an aptitude, or at least an understanding of things scientific and technological. But running alongside that are skills that we typically associate with the humanities, including emotional intelligence, communication skills, economics, behavioral psychology. And I think that this is underobserved, but already happening. Um, you know, one person who I've, I've had the pleasure of doing some work with over the last few years, who I think is, is an exemplar of this, and I don't think anybody knows this, is Mark Zuckerberg. Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook. Now, most people think of Facebook as having just been this product of this brilliant computer scientist from Harvard. And Mark was a, a, a brilliant computer scientist from Harvard. But what people don't understand is that Facebook is what Facebook is uh, with 1.3 billion regular users of its platform and a market cap over $200 billion, it is what it is as much because of Mark's expertise in behavioral psychology as his expertise in computer science. And so what I'm increasingly seeing with these, these 20-somethings and 30-somethings who most impress me with what they are inventing right now. You know, they may be a little geeky, but they bring these skills uh, from the humanities and they mash them up with their scientific and, and their technological skills. Uh, and I do think that we've got to take the traditional silos that we associate with uh, you know, our academics. Oh, I'm going to be a computer science major or I'm going to be a political science major we need to mash them up together. Uh, a second observation that I'll make about what skills and attributes today's kids need to compete and succeed in tomorrow's world, languages. Foreign languages and computer languages. Uh, foreign languages because the world is only going to grow more connected. You know, in, in many respects, the story of globalization in the last 20 years was the rise of India and China. And for those of you in this room who got involved in China 10, 15, 20 years ago, you've probably done pretty well. You were there early. It was tricky, but you rove this wave of, of growth. 
And what I believe is that while there isn't another India or another China out there with north of a billion people, there are, these, there are markets that are today's frontier markets, which will, be which will be tomorrow's developing markets. And today's developing markets will be tomorrow's developed markets. So when a 22-year-old comes to see me and says, what should I do with my life? I say, you're asking the wrong question. You should be asking me where. And so where I, what I think is increasingly important is in a world that is more connected, that is more digital, I think that there's actually no better indicator of how well-prepared young people will be to be business leaders in the future than how many good old-fashioned ink stamps there, there are in their passports. Because many of the great fortunes that have been made in the last 20 years through an understanding of developing markets, an understanding of today's frontier markets, which are going to be ever faster, develop, ever faster developing developed markets, are going to be where our kids make their fortunes. I think about Sub-Saharan Africa, for example. If you gave me a $100 bill and said, place that $100 bill anywhere on the globe where you think you're going to get the highest rate of return over the next 10 years, I'd put it on Sub-Saharan Africa. I'd make sure none of it got to the north, um, but on Sub-Saharan Africa. And it's a byproduct of connectivity. You know, when I graduated from college, you know, sort of the stereotype of Africa was that it was a center of development assistance and conflict. So, you know, I, even though I'm, I'm, I think of myself as pretty young, I'm 44 years old, if I'm going to be honest with you, sort of the blank stereotype of Africa, if you just say Africa, you go back to some of those images of conflict, development assistance, things like this. For 24-year-olds, they think about it as the most exciting market that's out there. So languages, metaphorically and, and literally, the ability to, to work on a 196-country chessboard. And then computer languages. Uh, computer code is the alphabet in which much of the future is going to be written. Um, and if, to me, it doesn't even matter if the languages that you are learning uh, are eventually are eventually unused, or if you aren't going to become a professional computer programmer. What's interesting about coding is that it teaches you a way of problem solving. Uh, and it brings logic models and new ways of thinking to relatively young people. And in a world where we do know that software is going to eat more jobs, where, where uh, the robots of the cartoons and movies of the 1970s are going to be the reality of the 2020s, we, one area where we do know that there will be sustainable job growth and job availability is for anybody who knows how to program in the future. Um, and because we know that humans are not as easy to upgrade as software, I think we need to, I think we need to start early uh, and, and we need to start soon in making sure that there is universal literacy in our K-12 system so that all these young people, in the same way in which after World War II, we had a big focus on in working class and poor communities, making sure that everybody had access to vocational education so that they could get a job in our industrial age businesses, so too do I think we need to make a similar commitment today to technological investments 
uh, in our low-income and working-class communities because we know that computer code is the alphabet that much of the future is going to be written in. Alec Ross wrote The Industries of the Future after serving under Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. He was her innovation advisor. Aspen Ideas to Go is available on iTunes, NPR One, and Sirius XM Insight, Channel 121. You can also find it on other podcast apps. Now, back to the show. Here's the rest of Ross's talk from the Aspen Ideas Festival stage. Uh, so with that, I would, love to, I would love to transition now into some question and answer. We've got about 20 minutes left. Uh, I'm not a diplomat anymore, so please feel free to ask undiplomatic questions. You know, those can be the most interesting. And we have a few mic runners. We have three mic runners. Um, and let's, why don't we start back here with the gentleman in the black. Hi, I'm the co-founder of a program named Border Kids Code. We service the bottom uh, tip of Texas in a low-income community. Uh, in our area, about 47% of our, of our students, they live in poverty. And so we go around doing computer science education. One of our biggest fights is embedding computer science education into the school system. Yep. Um, and so why, why hasn't that happened? And like, what could we do that, where we can be proactive to teach our low-income communities this education without creating a big uh, technology divide? Yeah, so, that's it. so first of all, thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, you know, it's incredibly important. And with that first question, I'm going to give my first undiplomatic answer. Um, as a former school teacher, and since I was a school teacher, I was a member of the Baltimore Teachers Union. Um, reforming, public, reforming public education in this country is way too hard. And if you want to look, in my, when, I was at, when I worked at the State Department, I went head to head with Vladimir Putin. You know, I dealt with I, you know, I dealt with Bashar al-Assad. You know, I worked to help take down the leadership of two narcotics cartels in northern Mexico. You want to know who's as ferocious as any of them? Teachers unions. <laughs> and so it's terrible. It's terrible, but it's true. Um, so I think that you, I, it, God bless you if you can work from within the system to make these changes. But what I actually think is that we need to hack this from the outside. We actually need to support more, pro more programs like yours. Other questions? Yes. Hi, I'm a, a professor of technology and innovation policy, and I also work at the United Nations on the same topic. I have a, I have a question, um, actually two. Uh, if you'll let me. The first question I have is, um, I'm very intrigued by your methodology. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about how you, you said you traveled across the world, yep. visited the different countries. I want to know, I mean, what methodologies you use to come up with the predictions that you have in the book. Um, a second question I have is, I think it's very, um, I, I, I've read the book, I really like it. Thank you. Um, but my question is uh, somewhat related. These are, uh, these are trends which are um, 
um, encouraging, to say the least. That are what? A encouraging, to say the least. But what do you think will happen to uh, issues that are so relevant to us socially because of these trends? Yep. What is going to happen to, say, security, poverty reduction, equality, um, and basically engagement for a common future? And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that. Sure. Thank you. Those are both good questions. So first on the methodology, it's very boring, to be honest with you. you know, I really took a data-driven approach to sort of, the, the travel around the world was to test theses more than to develop theses. So, you know, I was based at Columbia and now at Johns Hopkins. So what I really, I had a research staff of about five people. And so what we really did is I asked a handful of questions. You know, where do we project uh, the largest areas of growth over the next 15 years? Do those areas of growth correspond to impact both at work and at home? What is the impact on GDP nationally as well as household GDPs? So lots of you know, good old-fashioned academic geekery. And then what I wanted to do with this book was not write a textbook, but I wanted to write a book that like, everybody would want to read to try to take academic content and translate it to much more mainstream audiences. And so that meant taking the geekery and rooting it in storytelling that illuminated a larger truth and so the methodology then was, if I had theses about robotics, for example, going to Seoul, South Korea, and going to Japan, and spending time with Terry Goo at Foxconn, to be able to animate the data with stories. Uh, as to your question on the social issues related to this, I want to get to the security thing, but actually let me bring one of the things that I think is actually going to have the biggest impact socially in, our war, in, in going from a world of 16 billion internet-connected devices to 40 billion. And that is the near total destruction of what we presently define of as privacy. Um, and most people, I think, focus on this totally wrong. They worry about surveillance, you know, top-down people watching us, when what they should be working, worrying about is surveillance. Raise your hand if you have a video-enabled cell phone right now. I mean, there's, that's surveillance. Anybody here can record anything that is happening. That presents so much greater a threat than the NSA, GCHQ, or, or, or anybody else in terms of the erosion of our own privacy. Um, you know, GCHQ, the NSA, and others, what they really want to do is identify people who are posing threats of acts of transnational terror. But in a world where we are constantly leaving these digital fingerprints, what I believe is that there's going to be a loss of, of privacy as we know it. And I think we lose something important with that. Now, having said that, the big social consequence of that, I think, is going to be shifting norms. So in a world with more transparency, where all of our youthful indiscretions are not locked in a closet, but are posted in indelible digital ink. I think we're going to accept human fallibility uh, to a degree that we don't do presently. And, I, and I, think about, I think about shifts in norms over the last 20 years in a lot of different subjects. Let's think about you know, the recreational drug use of presidential candidates. You know, in 1992, it was a big question. You know, Bill Clinton, did he inhale? And if he inhaled, like this was a big, you know, this was going to be a big deal um, in whether he was going to be elected president or not. Fast forward 16 years, Barack Obama's like, oh, I inhaled. 
I inhaled a lot. I liked it. And oh, I did coke too. And no big deal, right? What happened? Norms shifted. Let's think about homosexuality. Again, 44 years old, I think I'm a young guy, but when I was in college at Northwestern University, homosexuality was still viewed as, as relatively aberrant behavior. It's like, there's the gay guy. But everybody on a college campus today, it's like, pff, yeah, like 10, 15% of everybody here is gay, whatever. What happened? Norms shifted. So I think the biggest social impact of all of this connectivity on, on, on social frames is going to be the impact of the loss of privacy and what that portends both positively and negatively. Sorry for the very long answer. Thanks. One of the great models that has pulled billions of people out of poverty in the last 20 years, you cited China. Yep. But in other countries as well as, has been this export-led manufacturing model from the South. And just as the North is worried about the hollowing out of its labor force through technology, mm -hmm. th my country, India, uh, there's a lot of concern that we've kind of missed the boat. Yep. We sort of have 12 million jobs to create every year. Our current Prime Minister, Mr. Modi, is pushing for manufacturing. A lot of people are saying, hang on, maybe you're just too late. Robots. Hmm. What's your answer? Yeah, so I think that if you actually look at the economics of robotics, I think that they did lose out on a certain kind of manufacturing, right? You know, the whole made-in-China style of manufacturing of, oh, we're going to take really poor people and make them less poor because we can produce a good at a relatively low service, that's going to be automated. Uh, but when I do think about India, where I get excited about India is when I think about things like precision agriculture. Um, so a third of the world's people who still live in severe poverty are in India. And India is home to far and away the world's largest concentration of subsistence level farmers. And so when I think about what Modi should be doing, and when I think about you know, potential job growth broadly and increased well-being, I think that it should become the home to precision agriculture, you know, figuring out how to use these data tools and, in, and relatively low-cost hardware and software to take the bone-grinding work of millions of Indian farmers and making India the home for innovation here. So I think that there are opportunities, but I think for them to just sort of me too China in terms of becoming a center of low cost manufacturing, I think that, that, I think that, that time has passed. Al, you talked about connectivity and you talked about digitization, big data, connectivity. Could you speak a little bit more, maybe you covered in your book, IIoT, yep. and how all of machinery will be connected to everybody and that's, everything. Yeah, that's right. So for those of you who didn't hear, who's asking about the Internet of Things, IoT. Yes. And so going from a world of 16 billion to 40 billion connected devices means, as I said, that we are going to be networking devices that didn't previously have zeros or ones running through it. Um, let me give a, a, an odd view of the positive and an odd view of the negative on this. And I do, there is a chapter in the book on this. On the positive side, I, I think that autonomous vehicles, which in many respect, what, it, what is a better exemplar of the Internet of Things than are taking our automobiles uh, and taking the driver out of the seat? Um, a little bit scary in that the number one job for all males in America, 3 million, is driving a truck, 
driving a vehicle for a living. Um, we're, those, a lot of those guys are going to lose jobs. But I think that the, our ability to take time that is wasted uh, with a wheel between our hands combined with sig significant increases in safety, you know, I think that this development in the Internet of Things, and this is going to change the way all of us live. Uh, and I think it's going to decreasingly be the case that people buy their own cars. There's going to be shared mobility. When you need a car, you just you know, tick an app on your cell phone. A car shows up. It takes you where you want to go. So on the positive side, I see developments like this. While, again, they're going to create scary secondary and tertiary effects in terms of the future of labor, I think it's going to increase the quality of life and the length of life uh, for many people. On the negative side, uh, I had the seat in the White House Situation Room dedicated to cybersecurity for the State Department. Um, and my book is mostly optimistic, but the darkest area that I focus in on is cybersecurity. I think that the weaponization of code is the most significant development in conflict since the weaponization of fissile material. The difference being that creating a nuclear weapon requires access to the scarcest of scarce scientific talent and transuranium elements, whereas creating powerful malware has a much lower barrier to entry. So what I worry about with the Internet of Things, what I worry about with our going from a world of 16 billion Internet-connected devices to 40 billion Internet-connected devices is the security threats shoot up monumentally as well. And so if we are putting more of our life in the cloud or otherwise online, I think the most malignant byproduct of that are the security threats that come to it. Uh, I do think that we have to continue to move to the cloud, but I'm also sort of not naive about what it means for us, for us to have our lives uh, increasingly in zeros and ones and in zeros and ones that are vulnerable to hackers. I think I've got time for, for one or two more questions. Yes, the lady in black, yes. One of the things that uh, really struck me about your presentation is, is that you're talking a lot about, you know, what are the economies and industries, you know, in the long term? Uh, for me, I'm looking more about, you know, what's happening right now? What are the exciting innovations that are happening now? And what's happening in the medium term? Particularly with crowdsourcing and microtasking and the fact that you can use technological platforms to really increase the diversity of thought and the, degree, and the diversity of individuals who are able to participate in the economy in ways that you know hasn't happened in the past so what it you know how, how would how do you think that you know these advances in the medium term are going to uh, link to some of your predictions in the long term yeah I mean so I think there is so much focus on the short term and medium term that I did want to back out a little bit and imagine 10 years from now um, which some people wouldn't you know a history professor would call the short term, but I, you know, I did try to have the discipline of saying, all right, beyond what is in, you know, today's Wall Street Journal, you know, what are the things that are going to turn our lives inside out? I mean, the key thing for me, as it relates to your question, is when we talk about these powerful technological platforms, it ga it gives capabilities to individuals and networks of individuals that were once reserved for very large hierarchies. Uh, so capabilities that would have once been reserved to a large media company or a government now 
you know, somebody with, again, a cell phone can be able to, can be able to exercise power uh, in ways that weren't previously possible. And so I think that this, this is both good and bad. It's good in that um, it empowers the individual. It's bad, interestingly, in a geopolitical context sometimes. And so, for example, propelling revolution. So I saw the impact of connection technologies fueling revolutions in the Middle East, where it enriched information environments, where it facilitated leaderless movements and other such things. But what, what it did is it gave, in many respects, short-term capabilities to individuals without uh, institutional backing, basically, or even good old-fashioned leaders to be able to steward what they had executed against over the short term. And so I think it's very exciting in sort of a, an economic context, but I actually think that in a geopolitical context, these tools contribute to both the good and bad that we're all contending with. Well, listen, thank you all. Alec Ross is an innovation expert and wrote the book, The Industries of the Future. He's a distinguished visiting fellow at Johns Hopkins University and was recognized as a top 100 global thinker by Foreign Policy magazine. His lecture was part of the 2016 Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of our public programs. Thanks for joining me.